Hi, Martin. How are you? Welcome to the Legends series. Now, I know we're worlds apart at the moment in LA and you're in England, but I believe you've got the LA weather over there. We have. We've got, um, I think, yesterday in Norfolk, which is the sunniest county in the UK. And I think it was 28 degrees here yesterday. But, uh, you know, it was a little bit too warm for, for us Brits or us Irish because <laughs> as we're not well, we're not conditioned to that sort of weather. So by the weekend, come Sunday, that would disappear. So if you haven't got yourself booked off work for your holiday, you're missing the summer it's gone. <laughs> okay, well, everyone actually that I've spoken to has been complaining about the sunshine, so you're not the only one. I know it was a bit hot there. But you were on the Legend series because your tale is one of legends for sure. So let's look all the way back to the 90s, which didn't seem so far away, but now is actually miles away. 30 years ago. It was, a long, it was three years a long time in anyone's life. Yeah, indeed. Well, I suppose where to start? First of all, let's go all the way back. What was the favourite team that you raced for in Formula 3000 or before that? What are the big memories before everything sort of happened? Well, I've been very lucky that in my career, I came to Norfolk here to, to live or to drive, as you say, for Rolf Furman. Rolf Furman was a man that had uh, founded Van Diemen uh, race cars. And that was a team to be with back in the 80s and 90s because people like Erwin Stella came here in, in 81 with his new wife then. And she didn't like Norfolk because in the winter it was cold, wet, and she had to do her own ironing, her own cooking. And that's not what she did in Brazil. Uh, in fact, when he went back at the end of the year, uh, she wouldn't come back. And he basically said, well, you know, I'm going back to become a driver. And he came back in 82. And eventually, they got divorced. So that wasn't a very good business decision from her. Uh, and so that was a team to be with. And I came here and I, I lodged with a lady over in Great Ellingham, about 10 miles from here. She was christened Mrs. Happy Breeze. And she became my second mother, 25 pounds a week. And then I went to Tom's Toyota over here at the Hingham, which again is only just over the hill, about 10 miles away. Raced with uh, Tom's, and my teammate then was Damon Hill, uh, who is still a good friend of the In fact, it is a Zoom session last night. We have a rat pack. So we had uh, 12 of us on there last night. I was going to ask you about the, your rat pack, actually, but we'll get we'll get to that. And I'm very impressed, by the way, when I asked you how we could do this, you knew exactly what Zoom was. You were on top of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I'm big into Zoom these days. And uh, then I, I, I with Tom's, with David, that was good. They're stressful days. Uh, I'll tell you more about that later. And then, with, of course, the, the infamous Eddie Jordan, the world's most lovable rogue. And uh, he taught me good lessons in life. And that was good, a, a good team, a good ambience. And then, you know, from there with success, uh, Lotus up the road here, which again, six kilometers away, we're, we're, we're on the phone to come and uh, talk and negotiate. So being here in 84, the teams I've driven for and raced with have all been on my doorstep. I haven't had to travel to Germany or to America or to, to France uh, to travel. So I've been very, very fortuitous. I've been nice to sort of stay, stay locally here. I'm a local boy. With my Norfolk accent, which you can tell. <laughs> I was going to say, did you ever think that you would call Norfolk your home forever? No. I remember coming back from Ireland when we had a Van Diemen chassis. I raced in 81, 82 in Ireland, and Ralph gave me a car for, for, for a loan. And we came back and made up the car, no accident damage. There's a hotel down here in Attleborough called the Griffin, 
at the 16th century uh, women's lodge and so it became a hotel. As all done as rickety and, and lying in bed one weekend thinking, because there's no, nothing there for the young. There's no cinemas, no uh, gymnasiums, no um, youth clubs, nothing at all for the young people to do. I was lying there thinking, well, what am I going to do today? Because there's nothing to do. And I thought to myself, if there's one place in the world you wouldn't want to live, it would be Attleborough. Pres hey, presto, I've been stuck here ever since, more or less, you know, at home. My children all speak, well, go to a local college here, 25,000 metres away with the college. It's the UK's biggest boarding school. I know it gets uh, upgraded because of this COVID. My daughter's A-level exams have now been cancelled. So she's getting all, she did the mocks and then it hit in and stopped. So in her room, she had all her books tied in bundles. She said, you see those books down on the floor? Said, that represents two years of nothing because she's done that and it's been no use to her now, you see. So that's her finish. So she hopefully will go on to university. She wants to take a year out to travel. She wants to become a vet um, and come back and pick up on the offers that she had from the various universities. My son actually, he's still upstairs in bed. That's hence the early Zoom session because when they wake it up, they go looking, hunting for food and they make noise. But he's got uh, snakes, he breeds snakes. And the last night in the Zoom, we put the rat back, I got them out and put them around my neck. And the boys can believe that we're using that as a business to, to explore and um, have eggs and sell them. <laughs> and that scares me because I remember when your children were under 10, I'm sure. <laughs> So that makes me feel old as well. Okay, so, so many memories in Norfolk and obviously where you call home now. But uh, the legend sort of takes you to Formula One and of course the, the big crush. But let's talk about your first season in Formula One, the big memories for you. Big memories? Well, you know, I had a bag in the head, so my memories are not that great. Um, <laughs> obviously, exciting times to eventually sign for, for, for Lewis. Those then, when I drove, I was still under the Chapman era. Uh, Hazel owned the team, and Clyde was still involved with that. Um, and I remember we were we were testing with uh, three thousand out in Le Mans at the Pigalle circuit for Age One racing, and that same weekend, I think it was the Imola race, and the team was organised a private plane to come pick me up. So they flew into the airport opposite track in France. So we, I jumped into that, so out of one track, into plane, back to another track, across the Alps. And it was just a bit of a, you know, making up a pinchy doubt. We're going to go to him and be introduced to the world's press as the new latest F1 driver, you know. And, and then I, I, the next thing on your courts, I arrived at a new Lewis Elites, a new Lewis sorry. And life just takes off then, you, you're, you're caught in that bubble. Um, Fitness then became an important part, which I wasn't fit enough then. We went testing at the Estrel. I remember the old neck gave out after about 15 laps. I think, guys, I need to get my act together. And things then develop and you, you go along. And um, Derek Ward was obviously very much a uh, revered teammate. Senna wouldn't let him into Lotus because he'd seen him as a threat. And, and I realised I had to live up, live up to that, um, that challenge. And, I think I did, I did well, but there's a lot of, you look at the qualifying records, seven down, weren't split by tenths or we split by thousands and, and hundreds in a qualifying time. And sometimes two of Derek's favourite tracks, as you said, were Silverstone and Monaco, I managed to go out and lift my game and I qualified, which didn't 
didn't please him that much. Uh, and then when it came towards Jerez, Jerez, we the weekend before was the Portuguese Grand Prix, and I was having a villa built in Spain back then. And so we didn't fly home. There's no point in flying out of Lisbon back to Norfolk, come back out again the Thursday. So we, we went over and just still on these coats and I got badly sunburnt. My friends came out with us there, Jenny, who used to run the SCAF, who fed all the drivers back then on the old LM, especially Ayrton. Uh, and I don't even remember the Portuguese Grand Prix. All I know is what I see on, on the TV. I don't remember any memories of that at all. You, you don't remember of, any of those? No, no. The weekend of Jerez, we flew into, flew into Seville and got a hire because it was a massive big Citroen shooting break, a big estate car, with a lot of baggage, uh, obviously with our friends as well. We were we were on the track on the Campbell scooters. I said to Ed and Jerry, there's a good, good corner to watch from because you can see five or six, which was just from further down from the back of the paddock. And that's where they were stood and watched where I had the axe and more right in front of them. And they would do with Roberto Moreno, who hadn't pre-qualified, who again used to eat at his calf when he drove for Van Diemen back in 79, I think it was, he drove for Rolf. So the legend's actually the calf in the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, was, that was the place to, to go and eat. I mean, when I went to Emla for the prison test, I took it with me as a friend. And because those, the garages are, 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 are allocated, on a on a where you finish in the constructors championship and obviously McLaren at the far end of the pillion roots or so much towards the back of the, the pillion. So you walk up along the front of the pit lane and just looking in the garage and just see what was going on. Uh, and we got to the McLaren pits and I heard it was the back of the garage doing an interview with some uh, journalists and he clocked the two of us walking past and he pushed the journalist to the side ran out the front and grabbed hold of Ed and gave him a massive big bear hug and said, what are you doing here? He said, I said to Ed, have you brought my bacon sandwich? Because you always go to the Captain Moore for a bacon sandwich. And he hadn't seen Ed since 1983, this is 1990. And Ed just melted, just tears came out and just, just broke down, you know, big man. And that was, that was a special, special moment in my life, you know, to share. Um, and Aaron was just an old bloke and he's on that path, that directory you know, to, to the higher excellence of Formula 1 and to become a F1 world champion, you know? Yeah. Uh, and uh, go back to our race. So there at the corner and uh, other things I remember, we went to a, a bar, a cafe bar, filled with smoke. Everybody, the Spanish men used to smoke. Parma ham all hung up around the bar. Never seen that before. We went 10 pin bowling. And Jenny just could not have the technique of bending the leg and sliding the ball along the floor. She used to throw the ball about a meter and it would bang and collapse. And that's, <laughs> We've been my, that's my memory of Jerez. I mean, you think that the morning of my accident, Lourdes took up the option uh, on my contract to sign me for 1991 as the number one driver, Mika Hackman, was coming in. And that was for 5.6 million. And I, I regretfully have to say, I didn't see a penny of that 5.6 million. But, but there's the myth of the check that was given to you that morning as well. Did yeah. you ever discover the check? Again, I, I know you said you, end, yeah. you did find it. Uh, but not because we were looking for it. Well, my fiance, Diana, and you know, a typical woman went looking and hunting for The check was for 40,000 US, US dollars. That was the option fee that they had to pay. 
and I put the check in the back of my telephone book, which is inside my bookcase. Which was she was checking through my clothes, my wallet, and wherever you hide the check. And she couldn't find it because when I was in the hospital, I was on a, a respirator. I got, my body got into shock. All my organs that were closing down. And that was a difficult time. I had the last rites. My mother was very, I'm very much a Catholic woman. And she didn't know if um, we were going to survive. So obviously I did. And uh, so we asked uh, Lourdes then, which was then Peter Collins came in and took over the, the ownership uh, of the team for a new check, which, which he did. And we obviously cashiered quite quickly. And then some weeks, some months afterwards, he pressed over. We found the original check. So I have a frame in my office of the actual option that will be signed, the PR card that Jordan was doing for the team at the time, and the original check. And then so it tells a nice good story for when we do the afternoon presentations and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Now I know you've said you don't remember much, but you definitely have the luck of the Irish, for sure, <laughs> to survive that. When does the first memory come in? And obviously, there's no smartphones in that time. If there were smartphones, the crash would have been all over yeah. the internet. But there are videos of it. I assume you sat there and watched through it. Oh, yeah. Everyone watch the guys go on to Google, type in Don Lee F1, and you'll, you'll see all the American correspondents or ESPN and all the rest of it. So, uh, but again, you know, I don't remember any of that. Um, in fact, I had no memory retention until after Christmas. My accident, I think, was the 28th of September. So September, October, November, I mean, they... Eddie Jordan launched his F1 team in November of that year because a lot of the Irish journalists who I was quite friendly with, people like Morris Hamlin, uh, Sammy Hamill from Belfast, and uh, from Michael Carr from, uh, from Dublin, all came across to the launch of the, the Jordan team. And on the way back to the airport, they called into the hospital, which was the Whitechapel, the hospital in Whitechapel, where Sam Watkins practiced from. And back then, I still had a sense of humor. I mean, I had a, a locker on this side, which was full of beer. A lock on that side was, was, was the spirits. And Perry McCarthy, who we mad dog, he says it was the best bar in London because it was the cheapest. It was all free. So I used to call in on her regular basis uh, and give you all this, all this tats from the Jordan launch. And I was talking about to them. And my voice was very hoarse because when I was in the respirator, the tubes had affected my voice box. So again, if you go back into Birmingham, only Birmingham 3000, I didn't know to speak like this. I had a very I was just on the cusp of turning into a very polite snob because I was going to just speak very, okay, yeah. It was just turning. But thank God for the accident and that stopped that. And, uh, and two days after the, after the being to the ward, the, the, the journalist, I asked uh, my fiance where all this stuff came, came from. I don't remember it. My parents were there for six weeks. I don't remember them being there either. And I asked Sid, you know, why, why that was, why didn't, why I couldn't remember these things? And he said, well, Martin says, you're, you're, he, he, in layman's terms, your brain's like part A, part B. And it's the part A protecting you from the part B and trying to attack with all these negative uh, thoughts and effects and to stop the, the trauma and the after effects. And that guy's hitting the therapist ring me and said, Martin, the professional hypnotherapist, if you want us to help you remember the accident, here's my number. And I think, oh my God. Why would I want to try and remember that, you know? <laughs> One regret I do have is that people that came to the hospital said to me, again, my, my good friend Derek Warwick, he came in, I was in the intensive care. Uh, we, my fiance Diane, she had to sort of 
had to be screened quickly. There's been a lot of journalists who were really upset over where Martin's uncle and where Oakland would say, they weren't uncles, so they just wanted to come in and get, get the picture. And so she marked uh, Derek's one and said, look, Martin's not the Martin you knew a month and a half ago. She got a lot of tubes from every set. And they're like, no, no, it's going be fine. So she took him down to, to the ward into where I was in bed with the sheets, curtains around the bed. And she put the curtains back and Derek actually collapsed and fainted. You know? So I would just like to suddenly take a few pictures, even Diane said, look, you know, we have pictures of how you bad you've got. Would you like to see them? Of course I'd like to see them because I don't appreciate myself. I bet I just, I heard how bad I got. That's, that's, that's me. And you don't obviously remember how you ended up in Whitechapel as well. Oh, well, I, I know how I got there, but I don't remember it. I mean, obviously the accident was, was I have the, the record of being the only F1 driver to, to have survived an, uh, an accident of that magnitude. I went through 42G uh, when I hit the barrier, 176 miles per hour. And then with the force of the impact, because we had the big Lamborghini T12 engine, it was a heavy lump. So the tub that was made from carbon fiber was made lighter uh, to save the weight. It was made of my, some of my friends from crisp paper, paper packets. And when I hit the barrier, obviously it, 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 it exploded, it disintegrated. And I got thrown out of the car by about 50 meters with the force of the impact. And it's been proved that if I hadn't gone with the impact, I would have died. Hence, I understand that cars were made stronger, uh, different after that, more reinforced. And when I hit the brick wall at uh, Imola within 45 degrees, what actually killed Ayrton wasn't the push rod going through his helmet into his brain, it was the impact that broke his neck. He actually broke his, his, broke his spine, broke his neck, and that's what killed him. And from that accident, it's important that we all learn from that, we all know I, as professionals, were hand devices. Yeah, and you're one of the few, you just mentioned him now, Senna always used to go to the crash site as such, obviously yeah. you yeah. were a survivor from your crash site, but you were just part of this historic generation of motorsport. And uh, what's that like to know that he walked down to your crash site? And for his crash site, I know nobody could get anywhere near, but it, it's kind of a special feeling to know that he went down there. He was a, he's a very intriguing character. Obviously, he's very deeply brought up with his Catholic religion. And, you know, was, I'm a Catholic. I don't, I'm not a practicing Catholic. Um, I was brought up in boarding school with priests. And that's a different story. And, um, uh, and if you look at the, over the history, when Eric Comas crashed at the top of a rouge, uh, during that weekend, I went off and I was injured. I had stopped this car and ran back down the road to where Eric was by the F, but the circle was still alive, so he's running towards oncoming F1 cars over a, a blind crest. Again, with Barrichello, that uh, tragic weekend at Adimla, his friend from Brazil, he went to the medical center to see, to see Rubino, and he was able to tell the journalist that they'd be okay, he just had a, a concussion. A, they had a, a broken nose and arm. And then with Ratzenberger's accident, he jumped in the safety car and went down to, to see, well, and my accident is exactly the same. But back in those days, it's not the format that one wasn't was it is today. We had qualifying on a Friday for an hour and then qualifying on a Saturday for an hour. So 
it was always nine times out of ten when you go round and round with, with cars in a, in a track, it lays rubber down and the track is quicker. So nine times out of ten, the track would be quicker on a Saturday. And I heard came out to my uh, accident. He only just back hundred yards across with his transporter across the fence onto the track. And Sid was trying to get me stabilised and cut my helmet straps off and offered up the helmet. The person stood there was Ayrton, so Ayrton got my, my helmet. And he knew me, Ayrton, personally, because when we, when I was living here, and Ayrton was living in, in Alphaborough, um, we went for, I would say, over three years, about 25 meals down out there, a good restaurant called, oh, what was it going by? An Italian guy. It's gone from my head. And we went there with Rolf and Angie. So we made meals together, and when he joined, from the three, he used to always come and meet the Doric, and that used to always come there and meet. And when he had an apartment in Norwich uh, for Lourdes, he wouldn't stay there, he wouldn't stay with Angela and Ralph and Roberts, because that offered them the, the peace and tranquility and protection that he needed from, from the journalists and the paparazzi. So there was that friend that was there, and for, for him to watch, there was a lot of blood. My femur came out the side of my, my leg, so he cut the overalls open and I burst up an artery. So there's a lot of clatter about and syringes and whatnot. I heard and stood and watched the person that he had a relationship with fight for his life. And the thing was, he went back to the garage and go back into his car. He didn't have to because of a for Saturday and put his visor down and went out and did the fastest lap ever around uh, Jerez at that time. And that takes a special man to sort of to blank out what he just watched for half an hour on the track to go and do his fastest lap. And then I have an audio tip somewhere here. When he had to go, when you get told you have to do the, the FIA press conference, and he walked into the, the room and he just said the journalist there, that he wasn't taking any questions from the floor, that he wanted to explain to the journalist and to the world why he did what he did uh, and the reason for doing that. It's like very similar, in a, in a long story short, it's like you fall off a horse. They would say the best way to get, to get back on the horse is to get on as soon as you can. And that's what he did. Face your demons. And that's what he did. Special man, uh, a loving man, a very caring man, uh, and actually a very talented racing driver uh, who brought a lot into to, to F1. But you can see in the world of when his teammate to, to, to Prost, everybody's seen the telephone, uh, a very complex man. And he had his, his, he had his, his demons. And you know, he overcame that. He came with Johnny, he beat Ross with equal equipment. But, you know, a good man gone the first time, as you say. Well, I suppose it is the luck of the Irish to have survived that. And of course, uh, your latest crash as well, you're back healthy and well. We'll talk about that in a second. But is there any what if? Do you, do you imagine every day what could have been? Or did you then at least imagine every day, or were you just thankful that you'd made it through? Uh, trust me, it has its moments. I mean, my friends, we were all there last night with that, with that uh, Zoom, the Rat Pack, Damon there, Johnny Herbert, um, Derek Warwick, they're, they're all there, Martin Rundle. And, you know, I was quick if not quicker than those. I mean, Johnny, I rescued Johnny's career twice in the past. I said, no, DJ, and they, they still had a three, three drive. I said, no. And then when I had my accident, I one joined on the sidelines. He was a research driver. And the seventh director, we should always want to test the cars ourselves. Because track time, the seat time is, is quick time. And then when I had my accident, Johnny got back into F1 again. 
like you said, Joy, I never received that check for commission or for getting them back into those drives. Um, and in the morning of my, my accident, I had four contracts from F1 teams to, to join them. One of them Arrows from Jackie Oliver, one of them Terrell from Ken himself. Obviously, EJ, EJ, we went through three contracts because EJ first produced, produced his contract in his motorhome at the 3000 Razor contact. It was all me, 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 me. It was all about him. I said, EJ, why would I want to sign a contract when nobody in this team has F1 experience you put together and for a, a lesser sum? So unless you can match the second year terms of my F1 year with, with, with Lotus, um, I wouldn't do it. So anyway, eventually, on the third contract, we, we could have done something with that. And then we actually went to a good lag because what I signed originally with Lotus wasn't worth 5.6, but I don't think uh, Peter Collins was that shocked at the time. So we write, we waived these contracts and found that Peter's face said, look, unless you, know, you can match these, you were going elsewhere. So we blagged it and blagged it and blagged it. And eventually, Peter could produce a new contract for 5.6 million. My original Lotus contract was for 1.2 million. So that was uh, <laughs> that's in the book that's coming out, uh, which we do at the moment. Um, a little good, good, good things there. And, and that was it. And that's why I think that, you know, uh, you, you had your private planes because you wouldn't have to, you have to go for EasyJet and Manor and all that carry on that you do now. And you know, a lot of drivers share their planes. So one guy will say, go to Austria, and so six will jump on to Vigliardo's plane. And then some people jump with the Coke Cars plane. Uh, and that's where things are these days. Uh, and I wouldn't be living here. Because there's a lot of places, people go to Monaco as a tax exile, or they go to Jersey where Mansell and Warwick and Alex Prio are there, over, this, over there. Uh, and Damon was quite clever to a place in Ireland called Kleine Court, which is just a little cove about 50 miles south of Dublin. And Bono, uh, Krista Burr, uh, David Candy, David Hill, Martin Moraine, uh, Eddie Irvine, it's not Irvine, I don't think Irvine was there, I'm not too sure, all lived there as tax exiles. Wherever, wherever I was there, because he used to get his chopper and go out to, into the RIC and go up north and into Northern Ireland and come in under the radar and not declare a day. So when you're a tax exile, I think you're only allowed 50 odd days in, in your homeland. Wherever I wouldn't tell anybody, just went there quietly and then came back out again. <laughs> Where is he now these days? Now, this Rat Pack, obviously, there was a, a lot of you guys uh, all from England as well. What do you make of Formula One at the moment? There's probably less English drivers than there has been through the generations. But as a whole, looking at, obviously, this season and the world pandemic, the labour land slightly different, but maybe looking ahead to, to 2021 and what Formula One looks like, it's very interesting to watch from the outside, I'm sure. I think, first of all, Back in my day, drivers could be drivers. You know, we could we could speak our mind. If it's somebody blocked or held you or taking you off, they'd go blah to the press, right? And there's a lot of that, and that's what made the characters people like like Nigel Matson would always open his mouth and put his size nines in. Um, but these days you've got the F1 uh, paddock pen, and you'll see a lot of the PR people involve the teams in there with their dictaphones. Because when drivers come in to the track in the morning, they're given the scripts and they're told, this is what we're doing today. 
And this is what the any question asked, this is the answers. And the people there with the dictum want to make sure they don't detract away from that script in case they can become liable or can be sued. So that's a great travesty that drivers can't speak for a man and they're just PR machines. Um, I do think that F1 has lost its way through this hybrid era. Um, there's a formula down there called Formula E. And if the FIA, put that together, Sean Todd, and if the FIA wants these uh, curves, kinetic energy, and hybrid turbos or not, they're formally do that. And I remember when I went to F1, if you got stuck in a traffic jam on the 845, out of and do Silverstone, you could hear the V10s and V12s from miles away. And one of the most lasting memories that anybody that, in that year that went to an F1 race was the shocking ear-piercing noise. Then you had the speed, and then you had the spectacle. But we still have the speed, and we still have the spectacle, but not the noise. Mm. And when the Master Series there, last year and the year before, supported the F1s at Silverstone, I was in part of the race, we had the old V10s, the old uh, Williams, the old Turtles, the old um, cars from that era, and they made a fantastic noise, and they got more attention from Joe Public than the actual F1 cars. So that was a major clue for the FIA to say, hang on. And of course, that teams need, we now have this new um, curfew on the, the, the budget on the, on the teams now, which Ross Bronze put in, which is a good thing. But when they introduced the new hybrid series, it increased the budgets, the teams, by over a third. Instead of reducing the cost, they inflated the cost. And teams that Red Bull Mercedes had 24 hour staff to come in to change engines because there's so many add ons. Uh, that it was just created, and the small teams just couldn't compete against that. That's the, the, the those are the two things that I think are are um, are lost on us. I think the F1 teams visually don't look attractive anymore. Um, they're a bit bland. Uh, teams now with these new regulations, it, it's like a caravan or a motorhome. It's a square, and inside that square, you've got to keep the regulations. And when the poor teams look to see what the new teams come up with, it takes them a year, two years to get the speed with that. And eventually they get more competitive and gangs eventually you catch them up because you can't you only can do so much inside that square. And that's what the F1 regulations stop development. So the F1 designers like engineering are, are, are handcuffed. They can't uh, work the, the magic pencil, which makes it that you'll see this year. Um, McLaren will be more competitive because they've caught up. Red Bull will be more competitive. Um, Force India, Force Point will be more competitive. So there'll be more teams training for the points and better racing and more reliable cars. And better again next year because they froze on the regulations and then McLaren will have Mercedes engine. It's more horsepower, more horsepower, more horsepower equal to quicker time. So it's get, it'll be better. It'll be more, it'll be more, more for the, the, the public to watch. Uh, from their, their TV screens. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for sharing the legend that is the <laughs> Martin Donnelly clash. Legends, crash, legends. I should say. <laughs>
But uh, before we go, let's talk about the new Martin Donnelly crash, <laughs> which was oh, the motorbike. You're doing well. You obviously had, uh, I, I was looking actually at your chalk outline that had been made on the road. I know that your, your mates that you were riding your bike with were obviously laughing to start with and it was all fun and games until you got to hospital. But you are all okay now, legs better and moving forward. Uh, leg, the leg will never be as good as it was prior to the scooter accident because there's uh, more damage there. The more damage at 20 miles per hour than 176. But, you know, there's a guy, a surgeon called Mitch Rodian, took a chance, uh, a gamble, and touched that gamble uh, uh, was a success because when I was in Ireland, the hospitals in Waterford town and Wexford city wouldn't operate on me. So I could stay in a backseat car all the way across from the west coast of, of England to the east coast uh, had the operation done. But, but yeah, I've got to be a little more, not so much challenge. I can't go go-kart racing anymore. I can't go and do city because my surgeon said to me, if I break it again, there won't be a third time. You know? So uh, I've got to sort of mature and uh, do sensible things. Uh, but as I said, you know, life's good. I've got three great kids. Uh, I'm still involved in sport I love very much. I still race. I race in the least championship uh, with other drivers, uh, which is still very competitive. I still have my track day company. I teach people. The fact I haven't got a six-figure sum in my bank account, hey-ho, there's worse things in life. Yeah, indeed. And you've started this new company as well yeah, on, your, on your T-shirt, yeah. which yeah. we like, in, in your Irish colours as well. So obviously this year to start with... <laughs> very good very good now this year is a bit of a tricky year but so if we sort of rewrite the script and look ahead to 2021 for the company what what will be the plan well over here we are we are we are lifting you know we were now the, the, the shops and high street have lifted track days are now back on again john palmer said last night that june has been their most successful year ever for track day events uh, but we can't see how have two drivers apart at the same time. Hence, it's more difficult for us at the Lewis Driver Academy as we have to teach in car. Uh, and racing uh, is returning. I mean, our first Lewis Elite Championship race takes place down the road here at Snellerton on the 12th of July. Uh, hotels are now starting to open up again so that those events can take place. Uh, and it's like, a, it's like a rolling stone, it gathers moss. 2021. Um, I think we very much, much from that, much the new, new um, normal is what they call it, the new normal. Yeah. Things will be done on a more restrictive basis. I still think people will be very much doing their social distancing, especially the older generation, like my mother and father from there, because they're high risk. Um, at hotels and, and restaurants, bars, well, well, after that, you can't stand at bars anymore. You have to sit at the table and be table served. And all that will, 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 will carry on for quite some time. I think people realise we've had over 40,000 deaths here now in the UK from, from COVID-19. And there's more, it's, it's still happening, but at a, at a slower rate. We're, we're on top of it, and people have to be respectful of that. The younger generation have to be respectful of that. We don't seem to be very compliant these days. But they'll learn the hard way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. Now, before you go, actually, um, who's the greatest person that you met along the way, along your journey? 
There's a question. Oh, well, treat people. Obviously, Eddie Hurton was somebody I very much looked up to. You know, his, his, his dedication to his sport. He, 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 he's been to marriage. He had to carry on, come back in 82. Uh, he knew what he wanted. And he knew what he was worth uh, at the end to, to a team. Uh, what he could bring to the table because I hit I open drive for you more or less guaranteed very good success that we did for Tolman back in the day the car that wasn't highly competitive um, and the other one was Manuel Fangio uh, the 1990 Grand Prix in Monaco he's one of my, my dad's childhood um, heroes because where we lived we had Dundrod and I used to watch Mike Hawthorne Fangio Sterling Moss Peter, Ch uh, Peter Collins, I think it was. And I was able to give him the opportunity in Monaco. He was hosting a, an evening and had a few contacts. And I got him and my mother and myself tickets to meet Fangio. I was able to introduce Fangio to my father. And my father just had a, a, a smile and fame that no money could, no money could pay for. Uh, and that was a very special occasion as well, you know. Uh, yeah, I know I people are away, but they just don't come to mind at this one time. Well, Martin, it's certainly a life well lived so far and plenty more troubles to cause along the way. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about the legend uh, that is. And I hope there'll be plenty more legends that still to come, plenty more stories. Knowing you, there certainly will be. <laughs> okay, thank you very much for this opportunity. And you're, like to say, you're looking so well. Obviously, LA Life is, is, is doing you good. And you're a young <laughs> boy. And I wish you uh, safety and good health uh, in the months and years to come. Thank you very much. Oh. Thank, Thank you, guys. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye.